here we are with episode 127 of the Far Middle as we're flying down the last week in October. I'm Nick Deolius. Much delighted to be with you for the next 30 minutes or so. And it is sports dedication time. Premier date for episode 127 is October 25th. And back in 1964, on the 25th of October, something happened during a play on the pro football gridiron that has gone down in infamy. Even people with just a general interest in football heard of it or know of it because the play epitomized life and the imperfections of human beings even more than it epitomized football in competitive sport. This was a play where we all could relate to its, I guess the most appropriate label would be victim. The individual singled out on October 25th, 1964, was Jim Marshall of the Minnesota Vikings, and his mistake was recovering a fumble by the opponent 49ers and running the wrong way into the wrong end zone. Marshall thought he scored a touchdown for the Vikings in the defense, but in reality, he scored a safety for the wrong team. Now, the 49ers ran a pass play and completed it. That started the sequence of events. And the receiver was tackled and was stripped of the ball before hitting the ground, which resulted in a fumble. The receiver, interestingly, to constant listener pro football aficionados out there, was Billy Kilmer, who ended up being a quarterback later in his career with Washington. Anyway, Marshall scoops up the fumble, and he ran 66 yards the wrong way into his team's own end zone. And after completing the run, he thought he had scored a touchdown for the Vikings. He tosses the ball sort of in a celebration toward the stands. And that results, of course, in a safety for the 49ers. Didn't take but a few seconds before Marshall realized his gaffe. And according to Marshall, when he approached Vikings head coach at the time, Norm Van Brocklin, Van Brocklin told him right after that play, Jim, you did the most interesting thing in this game today. That's an understatement. Van Brocklin, by the way, is a Hall of Fame legend. Now, in the game, Marshall actually ended up redeeming himself, and you don't hear enough about this in the lore of that event. The Vikings won the game, so Marshall's mistake didn't cost them the game itself. And that 27-22 victory for Minnesota was in large part due to a forced fumble by Marshall, which Carl Eller returned for a touchdown. Now, Eller, he ran in the right direction. And by the way, Carl Eller like Van Brocklin, is also a Hall of Famer. So despite the uh, the Vikings winning and Marshall delivering a key play to contribute to the win, people never ended up forgetting about the miscue. That's what they focused on. And here's a uh, cool side note about that now famous gaffe. Marshall later, after that event in the game, he received a letter from a gentleman by the name of Roy Rigels. Now, Roy Rigels was infamous for a wrong way run of his own in the 1929 Rose Bowl. And the note that Roy sent to Jim Marshall said, welcome to the club. So Marshall running the wrong way, it's one of the two most famous screw-up plays in the history of the NFL, the other one being uh, Garo Yapremian in his blocked field goal train wreck from Super Bowl, I believe Super Bowl Seven, which is another all-time classic gaffe. And then one final note before we leave Jim Marshall, I have him, in my opinion, as the best player who is not in Canton, Ohio, that has a, a bronze bust there. So he's the best player not to be in the Hall of Fame. Or maybe another way of saying that, if you had one more player from that era, it would be him. He should be in the Hall of Fame. Key piece of the fame, Purple People Eaters defense, which I ranked as the fifth greatest defense of the Super Bowl era. And you can peruse the entire top 10 list on nickdeolius.com under the commentary tab. 
and under the sports category. And Marshall, he also held the all-time consecutive game started record for years until Brett Favre unseated him. And Marshall still sits second on that all-time list for consecutive starts in NFL history. So get uh, Jim Marshall in the Hall of Fame as soon as possible and celebrate his one moment of not thinking as part of that journey of professional greatness. Screw-ups are going to happen, and the trick is to learn from them, adjust, and then keep achieving. I've got a special topic to dive into for episode 127 today, and we can make a connection to Jim Marshall's wrong way play to get things kicked off because we're about to explore a wrong way lifestyle in relation to what the individual is lecturing the rest of us on how we should live our lives and how we need to act. And Marshall didn't know what he was doing in the moment. He didn't understand that he was heading in the wrong direction. It was clearly unintentional from that perspective. But our connection to episode 127 subject is not a split second mishap or spur of the moment confusion. It's much more extensive and much more premeditated or intended than that. It boils down the publicly broadcasting and promoting one thing, you know, one way that we must all live and act and adjust and sacrifice for the common good, and then seeing a very public and open contrast with the choices and lifestyles and actions of the individual lecturing the rest of us. And this involves a very public person, a celebrity. Yes, saying one thing and then doing something quite different, that just seems to be a theme thread that tethers so many episodes and connections of the Far Middle Archives, because it's so prevalent in today's world, particularly when that lecturing and that contrast is coming from the preachings of the left. So today we delve into the public lectures and the personal actions and how they starkly differ from one another of Jane Fonda. And I think this is a topic and discussion that will surprise you and intrigue you. So let's get rolling and recognize this is not a hit piece on Jane Fonda, but the discussions designed to expose the utter inconsistency between what she advocates for and what she does, because the stakes are high for society and each of us. If Fonda's flawed policy views on environment and energy, if they're followed through on, we're all going to pay a steep price. Also, you can read a thorough summary of what is to follow on this Far Middle episode on nickdeolius.com and across my social media accounts as well, if you want to give it a deeper dive or a, a print version of this. Let me give you a little bit of background to help frame this up as we uh, journey through this discussion. This all started with a flyer that I received, and I can't remember if it was a hard copy in the mail type of a thing or a digital copy, but this occurred sometime early summer this year. The flyer was announcing that the local speaker series was coming out with its lineup of luminaries that were coming to town for its 2023-2024 season. Jane Fonda was the first guest on that schedule, and there was a short bio for her that mentioned she was the founder and was working on what's known as the Jane Fonda Climate PAC. PAC is in PAC, Political Action Committee. So she is focused on this PAC that she founded, which is looking to garner contributions, which it can then make political contributions to candidates for office, I suppose, that share her views on climate change. Now, reading the brochure and seeing Fonda there, it brought strong emotions. And in the interest of fair disclosure, I am not a Jane Fonda fan when it comes to some of her political views or advocacy efforts. Her two-week stint and visit to North Vietnam in 1972 
which was capped with the infamous photos of her perched atop a Hanoi anti-aircraft gun and smiling alongside NVA troops, that remains a, a very hurtful betrayal of America and its veterans in particular. I felt it was a shameless, embarrassing bid for attention and publicity. But you know, embracing a classic liberal view of individual rights, which I've subscribed to or said that I've subscribed to for years now on the far middle, that includes defending freedom of speech. So I can't fault the 86-year-old Jane Fonda for going on the speaker's tour or for running a political action committee or PAC to fund politicians that match her ideology and her policy leanings. After all, right, this is America. It's a free country, or at least it's still a free country, right? And maybe that's stretching wishful thinking with the left-running government these days. Some might say that. But, you know, call me an optimist in that I still think that individual rights within America reign supreme, including freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Now, interestingly, a few days after the Speaker Series brochure arrival, so after I saw that, I stumbled across an article featuring Fonda in a national newspaper style section. Okay, so the style section had sort of a quick expose on Fonda, and it was one of those features, you've probably seen them, where uh, it's a series each week that would be in the paper of everyday questions that are posed to the celebrity of that issue, who then provide the answer. So it's a Q&A type of an opportunity, and it offers some insight into the celebrity's preferences and you know, what their lives are like or their lifestyles are like and, and what their uh, preferences are with different fashion or foods or activities, that type of thing. Now, once I realized that Fonda was the guest, I gave a thorough read to that Q&A. It's something I usually just skip over very uh, quickly. But when I saw it was Fonda coming right off of receiving the speaker series brochure, I sort of paid attention enough to, to read it from start to finish. And many of her answers to the questions were riddled with a lot of climate change concern and advocacy for climate action. So that came through loud and clear through the Q&A. But our answers to the lifestyle and the daily routine questions, those answers betrayed personal actions that were very much in conflict with her environmental talking points. It was amazing how conflicted they were within the same article. And once again, I was shocked by the degree of hypocrisy that was on display, this time from Fonda. With such hypocrisy being a common occurrence these days, one would expect to be desensitized to it by now. But I wasn't uh, at that moment. In the timing and intersection of brochure and sort of style article, they were in many ways sweet serendipity for this energy policy aficionado, as I like to refer to myself. You had Fonda's approaching speech in Pittsburgh that, based on the brochure, one would infer will discuss the need to address climate change. And then you had the expose in the newspaper with Fonda chatting up her lifestyle. So it was an opportunity, perhaps, to put the celebrity climate talk to the test of the celebrity lifestyle walk. And that leads us into a connection to summarize uh, Fonda's sort of views on, on climate change and um, climate activism. She clearly considers herself an advocate for the environment and a voice to urge decisive action on climate change. There's no doubt about that. Those themes play prominent in many of her appearances and interviews and speeches. And she formed that Jane Fonda climate pact that I mentioned um, to gather donations to fund the campaigns of dozens of politicians who favor uh, the same environmental ideology and policies that she does. The organization's website, that's for the PAC, it's professionally done. 
It includes a five-minute video of Fonda pleading to cut fossil fuel emissions and to end the influence of those evil fossil fuel companies. And she makes mention of weather, bomb cyclones in California. Ironically, she points to the uh, Texas freeze of 2021 and the New England blizzards recently as signs of, of global warming. I'm sorry, check that. Climate change, you know, isn't the, uh, the term climate change so much more accommodating to the religion of radical environmentalism than global warming. Climate change is a much more flexible, uh, much more encompassing term, easier to, to morph. But Fonda also implores us to elect leaders who are going to act with urgency, especially in America's biggest cities, which need to move away from fossil fuels immediately, in her opinion. And she reminds us that those evil fossil fuel industry entities, they, they never rest. And I think she references lackeys, their lackeys in Congress, lackeys of the fossil fuel industry who are always hard at work planning uh, the next nefarious set of moves. Fonda touts her activist street cred across the website. However, I have to say, I did not see any mention of her Hanoi campaign in 1972 on the website. It might be there. I didn't see it. And she proudly promotes how she was arrested five times for protesting the government's inaction on climate change. She warrants that the uh, Jane Fonda Climate Pact It's laser-focused on one goal, which is doing what it takes to defeat fossil fuel supporters and elect climate champions at all levels of government. And she reflects that this might be the most important thing that she will do in her life, which is pretty profound. Now, of course, the the website urges personal aggressive action on climate change. Um, You get the the usual language typically here with the code red crowd, you know, turning points being reached, time is short, we've got to act with immediate action, that type of thing. And on social media, she posted a message that was asking, each of us one day will have to answer the question, what did I do to protect the planet? That social media question or post by the Jane Fonda Climate Pact, it got me thinking, what if the one day that Fonda referenced, what if that one day was today? How would Fonda's personal lifestyle today stack up to her rhetoric and lecturing to others about the climate crisis and the need to stop using fossil fuels. And that's where the newspaper article came into play. In it, Fonda happily discusses in detail much of her daily routine and interests. Now, when one considers the carbon footprint and fossil fuel inputs that come with a day in the life of Jane Fonda, I'm afraid I've got some bad news for the Code Red crowd. Let's perform an inventory and a tally. Fonda says the first thing she does in the morning is play online games. Uh, One of the games that she mentioned was Wordle, and she was sort of introduced to it by fellow celebrity and environmentalist Ted Danson. Now, let's assume the games are played on a smartphone or a smart tablet or a computer. All those electronic products, they carry massive carbon footprints on a life cycle basis, and they all need fossil fuels as a necessary input to the manufacturing process. Worse yet, many lengths of their production chains They carry egregious ecological damage and human rights violations in the developing world. Now, something also had to charge those electronic devices to power them. And that something would be electricity, which carries a significant carbon footprint and will rely on fossil fuels at some point on a life cycle basis, most often directly. If Fonda plugs in her devices in California, she should know that uh, wind and solar power generation they require substantial fossil fuel inputs and backup. Plus, California's grid to this day and into the future, unless blackouts are desired, it relies on fossil fuel generation for much of the time and year. 
All right, so Fonda is off to a not-so-sustainable start to her day, something that would be maybe committing serious climate sin before even lunch. But maybe there's time left in the day to repent and get back on a zero-carbon path to redemption. But based on her interview in that newspaper, things on that climate action front, they're going from bad to worse as the day unfolds. So Fonda, she works out to stay in shape, which is great. And she has a personal trainer who travels to and from her home to assist in her workouts. How does that trainer travel to her house? Uh Uh-oh. If one assumes that the trainer is driving a car, that's going to require fossil fuels. And if the car is an electric vehicle, an EV, the fossil fuel inputs and carbon footprint, it may be worse. They may be worse than that for a gasoline-powered car. Because electric vehicles, as we discussed, they've got monster carbon footprints when one breaks down each step of the manufacturing process for them. And when the trainer charges the EV, it's going to use the same power generation sources that the smart devices used, which inevitably have carbon footprints and rely in some way, shape, or form on fossil fuels. And Fonda says that uh, part of her workout regimen includes weights and resistance bands. Now, if the weights are metal, there's surely a carbon footprint and fossil fuel use attached to them. If the dumbbells are of the plastic or urethane finish style, carbon footprint, that might be worse since plastics and polymers require natural gas and petroleum products as feedstocks. And the resistance bands, goodness, those are typically latex. That's a chemical that requires fossil fuels as an input to manufacture. So the carbon math is starting to stack up against Fonda's preaching, but there's still time to make up lost ground. Let's see if Fonda's fashion habits can get her back on track to keeping fossil fuels in the ground. Fonda says her closet is big. Now that means the large size had a large carbon footprint to construct. And usually large closets are parts of large residences, which is another fossil fuel hog when building. The closet and the residence, they have to be heated, they have to be cooled, and they have to be lighted. Those things require energy and inevitably fossil fuel-derived and or powered energy. Fonda mentions that many of her clothes are shiny, and often shiny in clothing equates to materials and coatings that are petroleum-sourced. Should have stuck with neutral colors and boring materials if looking to save the planet. Fonda's go-to everyday clothing item is yoga pants, but such apparel is typically made from blends of lycra, and spandex, and nylon, and polyester, or similar light and stretchy synthetic material. All those materials cannot be manufactured without fossil fuels. Fonda, like most of us, has a favorite pair of shoes. Now for her, they are a fake alligator skin variety. That's great for the alligators, but when one hears fake, that's code for synthetic, as in petroleum-based. Does she realize she's walking around with crude oil strapped to her feet? Fonda's top jewelry item is a pair of gold earrings. Did she understand the unbelievable carbon footprint that gold jewelry demands? Not to mention the murky supply chain of gold and what it means to human rights, potentially. They may look great on the ears, but those shiny trinkets, they increased atmospheric CO2, and they might have done much worse to laborers in Africa or China. And Fonda has a favorite perfume, and she uses makeup. But perfume is nothing but a mixture of chemicals, each of which must be painstakingly industrially processed and carries a carbon footprint, along with its distribution and packaging as well. And the cosmetics industry, 
that might be one of the most carbon intensive industries in society, particularly when you assess it on a per unit basis. Well, Fonda wanting to feel and look good is more environmentally destructive than we had hoped, and things are starting to look ecologically dire for Fonda's personal choices. But still, there's still time to change the highway to climate hell she is on. And that's a shout out to UN Carnival Barker Guterres, who quipped, we are on a highway to climate hell. So shout out to him. Maybe her dietary choices will save the day for Fonda and the planet. Let's see. Fonda adores pizza, so we do have something in common. And she especially likes truffle pizza. Like many of us, she has a preferred pizzeria. And a quick review of that L.A. establishment's website shows that it is a Neapolitan pizzeria, which means it utilizes a brick ceramic oven to make the pizzas. And guess what those ovens are fired with? That's right, either the fossil fuels of wood and or natural gas. Yikes. And not to mention the fossil fuels burned to get to and from the eatery and to build the restaurants and, of course, to power the restaurant. She also admits to another guilty pleasure when it comes to food, which is kosher hot dogs. Oh no. Meat products, they are the worst when it comes to carbon footprint. It's hard to believe that someone as passionate about the climate is not vegan. She also likes ice cream. It's another thing that we have in common. Who doesn't like ice cream? And she is especially a fan of packaged ice cream bars. But unfortunately, ice cream carries a horrendous carbon footprint in its processing, its transport, and of course, its uh, refrigeration. Packaged ice cream bars, they're even worse. Really bad choice there when assessing environmental credibility. And from time to time, Fonda does enjoy an alcohol beverage. Nothing wrong with that. Except her favorite, vodka, you can't produce or bottle it without mining, drilling, and flowing fossil fuels. So if one desires a zero-carbon lifestyle, alcohol is verboten. This is getting ugly. It's time for a Hail Mary attempt to salvage Fonda's lifestyle. How about her travel habits? Well, Fonda's favorite hotel from past travels is the Ritz in Paris. The feel of the place was magical to her, from the sheets to the service to the food, everything. The Ritz in Paris and all the other over-the-top luxury that comes with it is one of the most energy-intensive service locations in the world. All its excess piles up the carbon emissions and fossil fuel use, especially, especially on a life cycle basis. The establishment, it should shut down immediately if one believes fossil fuel use must be cut in half or eventually eradicated. And Fonda's wish list for future travel is, interestingly, to Finland. Um, I'm not sure where Fonda calls home these days, but I'm guessing she's going to need to utilize air transportation to and from Finland. And unless she's spry enough to snowshoe and cross-country ski to the wilderness locations in Finland that she wants to visit, her logistics would include ground and snow and ice transport that are going to be powered by, you got it, fossil fuels. The best thing for the climate is for Fonda to stay home and skip any travel. Now you can see the obvious contrast between what Fonda lectures when it comes to choices in climate change and what she actually does with her own lifestyle decisions. Members of the Code Red crowd who are listening to this episode, they should be in panic mode by now. It turns out, by her own admission, that Fonda lives a life that is egregiously carbon intensive and that relies extensively on fossil fuels. It has your host thinking, 
WTF. This individual is a passionate advocate for climate action and keeping fossil fuels in the ground. She says it's the most important thing that she might end up doing in her life. Yet Fonda can't demonstrate a lifestyle that practices what she preaches. And all of it is arrogantly on full display across national media. It's hypocrisy hiding in plain sight, but a collaborative media refuses to expose the obvious that we just exposed with this episode. The moxie these days of elites such as Jane Fonda. But that moxie, it does provide opportunity to highlight unprecedented hypocrisy when it comes to much of the radical environmental movement these days. Environmentalism has morphed into a rigid religion and ideology. And if the high priests of the movement refuse to practice what they preach, it's up to the rational and logical to call them out. Did you find that walk through a celebrity's saying and the celebrity's doing, that comparing and contrasting, intriguing? I hope you did. And I want to dedicate this episode to all those who served in Vietnam, and especially the vets who weren't looking for a fight but were told to go. Salt of the earth, constant listeners. Vietnam vets are getting up there in years these days, and we need to honor them while some of them are still around to enjoy the respect that they so deserved and were so wrongfully denied for too many years. As I said, shameful treatment, often by celebrities like Jane Fonda. And I didn't agree with Fonda's excursions to Hanoi back in the early 1970s, and I certainly don't agree with her chasm between what she says we should do on climate change and what she does in everyday life. But I do think that Fonda is a very strong actor. I do enjoy her films. She's often paired when you're talking about her career and her films with Robert Redford. I guess that's because they appeared in several films together and because they were sort of peaking career-wise in the same era. I find Redford an okay actor, sort of underwhelming, to be honest with you. I think Fonda is the superior actor of the two. So let's wrap this episode on a positive connection with Jane Fonda. What's her best performance in a movie? Well, my vote goes to the film where she earned her first Academy Award for Best Actress. The movie came out in 1971, the year before Fonda was parading through Hanoi with the NBA. And it is Alan Pakula's dark thriller, Clute. Fonda played a high-end call girl who joins a detective, Detective Clute, to solve the disappearance of an executive. The movie is a great suspenseful mystery with a tense vibe. And Pakula was a great director who had a series of films um, that the film Clute started a run with, including All the President's Men, who starred, that's right, Robert Redford. Um, I think Pakula also did Sophie's Choice with Meryl Streep. But back to Clute. Uh, most film critics think the movie should have been titled Brie, not Clute, because Fonda's performance as the character Brie basically carried the movie. It dominated the movie. And you've also, by the way, got Donald Sutherland and Roy Scheider in that film to boot. So give it a watch if you like 1970s films and dark thrillers done right. Now, who knows what next week's episode of The Far Middle brings, but you know it will be engaging and engrossing and enticing. Till then, hang on.